This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. As mentioned, it's been uh, quite a week on the carbon tax front with the uh, announcement Monday in the House of Commons from the Prime Minister uh, that a federal minimum price will kick in. And uh, there's been a lot of reaction uh, right across the country. Uh, Brad Wall in Saskatchewan uh, taking a hard line, uh, announcing that uh, they're going to explore their legal options. We're here in Alberta, Premier Rachel Notley suggesting that her support for this is going to be contingent on federal action, federal support for pipelines. And there's been a lot of reaction. Joining us uh, for his thoughts and analysis, very pleased to welcome to the program, Andrew Leach, economist, associate professor of the Alberta School of Business, U of A, and was the chair of Alberta's Climate Leadership Advisory Panel. Good afternoon, Andrew. Hi there. Um, let me ask you, when, when you were going through the, the work of the panel, did, did you anticipate that Ottawa would eventually do something like this? Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think through our work, we were, always had a view to the likelihood of, of some type of federal policy. But, of course, our work con- coincided with the federal election campaign, almost all of it. So right. so through our work, there were different probabilities as to, as to who might be the who might be in government in Ottawa and what that would mean. But all three of the parties had uh, platforms that included actions that would have affected Alberta. So what, what's your sense initially of the impact that this is going to have? Uh, you know, I, I'm pleased so far with the plan that's come out from, from the Liberals. It's really in the same spirit as what we put forward uh, for Alberta. It's a little bit more stringent through 20. 21, 2022 than what our immediate recommendations would have been, but our recommendations were kind of grounded on the fact that many of our peer jurisdictions, especially other Canadian provinces, didn't have anything more stringent than the 30 that we recommended. And so this brings everybody else along uh, at the same levels as Alberta. And I really like the fact that it's emphasizing the policy. It's not looking and saying, okay, we have to do something more stringent here because this is oil sands, or we have to do something more stringent here for a variety of reasons. It's just saying no matter what you are doing that's emitting carbon, sitting on the 401 in traffic in your um, Prius or running an oil sands project in northern Alberta, you've got to see the same price on carbon. And and so I think that's really important and good for Alberta. Well, and I think it's worth noting because certainly we've seen calls in the past for uh, Alberta to be singled out or the oil sands to be singled out, but this this doesn't do that. It doesn't. Now, now, to be fair, there's still going to have to be some other shoes to drop on the federal policy if they are to meet the, the targets that they've sort of inherited from, from Prime Minister Harper and, and their government, the 30% below 2005 levels by 2030. This policy that was announced on Monday alone by the, the Prime Ministers and, and others in government's own admission isn't going to be enough to meet that target. So there are some other shoes to drop that could still have uh, extensive focus on Alberta. But for now, this is really a level playing field or close to it at this point. Well, governments don't seem good at meeting targets. Is, is I mean, is, is the policy sufficient? Do we still need targets? Well, you know, that, that's certainly been our history. And, and I think 
we've been very good at setting ambitious targets and very poor at putting in policies to meet them. And I think in some cases, and I wrote yesterday in the Globe and Mail about about the target trap, that you, you almost set yourself up for failure if you adopt an incredibly ambitious target and then anything that is even very stringent policy comes out looking like a failure. So that was something we turned away from with our recommendations in Alberta. So let's put policies in place here that compare favorably with other jurisdictions and let the policies do the talking. Now, the federal government has still been clear that they're committed to the same target, and so they're going to have to put in more policy uh, measures than what they've announced so far to get us on, on track to meet it. So you think there are going to be some some regulations that are coming? I think there have to be, and the government's, I think, been pretty clear in signaling that there are going to be some additional measures. And what might those look like? Um, well, I think the one of them is certainly coal-fired power will be uh, probably on the agenda. The other areas you probably look for are buildings and houses, vehicles, uh, particularly electric vehicle deployment, uh, something on large heavy industry, uh, potentially in terms of technology adoption, potentially home retrofit funding. So there's there's a lot of areas where they could be. I think building codes will be a priority for them to, to push ahead with the, the capital assets that are going to be in the system for a long time, you can make a big impact with small changes in building technology right now, uh, rather than waiting for 20 or 30 years for those buildings to be retrofit. All right. Does, does any of this make Alberta's plan redundant, though? Uh, no, I don't think so. In fact, I think what what you're seeing now is in some ways a function of, of the Alberta plan, that unlike previous attempts to meet Canada's targets, where it was basically easy for a lot of other provinces to come together and say, well, it really has to be on the back of Alberta that we're going to meet these targets. It's Alberta's fault that we're not doing this. Uh, You've seen Alberta ahead with a greenhouse gas policy that essentially set the framework for the national conversation. And it's really turned from, you know, not what are your emissions, but what are your to what are your policies? And I think that's that's part and parcel of it. It doesn't, I don't think in any way, make it redundant. It gives us a design that works for Alberta that fits within uh, the federal program. In terms of the impact of this, because I, I think there's some similarities in the opposition from, from the left or the opposition from the right in that reducing emissions is not easy, that to, to do something that's going to make a significant difference would have to be way more than, than what we're doing now. So we've got policy that we're putting in place that maybe we won't have a lot to show for at the end of the day. Um, well, I think you're picking up on a couple of things. Number one, we've committed to some pretty stringent targets. So we've committed to targets that would require a, ma- a radical change in the makeup of our energy systems and our economy over a relatively short period of time. And as with any, you know, if you if you set a goal to eliminate or make any large change in, in the Canadian economic system or in cities or what have you, without a consummate po- or a comparable policy, it's just not going to happen. And so I think what you have is, is a little bit of a contrast where the policies that we're putting in, even when you stack them up uh, globally, are... are are fairly stringent, but they're not going to get you to uh, to the Canadian targets because those are yet another level of, of more stringent or demanding even more stringent policies. Well, do we get emissions reductions from a price on carbon? Absolutely. It sounds trite as an economist, but demand curves slope downwards. So 
what you get out of a price on carbon is you get that substitution effect. You get the market effectively working for you to encourage people to find the things that work best for them to substitute away from high carbon products, lifestyles, choices, etc. So you, as opposed to the government coming in and saying, well, Rob, I don't think you're driving the right kind of car, you should change your car. It's putting the price on carbon and letting you decide whether changing your car, driving it less, driving it differently, uh, making different decisions over time are the right things for you. And and what the broad economic evidence suggests is that that's going to be a lot lower cost overall to the economy than uh, the government going in and picking winners and losers. Now, what it does do as a side consequence to that is it tends to also create government revenue. Right, because you are collecting this tax on emissions that still occur, or these prices on emissions that still occur, and so you have a, another government problem or um, choice to make into how to redistribute or distribute those those dollars, and that's where some of the debates fall in as well, is what are governments going to do with those dollars? Yeah. Well, if, if a government opts for revenue neutrality by offsetting the impact of the carbon tax with, with cutting other taxes, do you think that, that undermines those incentives that you talked about? Um. No, it it really doesn't. What uh, what a revenue neutral carbon tax does, at least according to the BC definition, is it says we're going to put the money back into the economy by reducing other taxes, which we know uh, distort behavior and actually have economic costs in, in personal and corporate income taxes. But you're still leaving that relative price difference that higher carbon fuels are going to be more expensive, et cetera. You're leaving that price difference there, which is what drives the change in behavior. The point of a carbon price is, is not, as you know, I've seen some people suggest, is, is not at all to make people poorer so they consume less. It's to change relative prices so they consume less of the things that generate carbon emissions products and encourage innovation to have fewer innovations embedded in the products we use. Well, and, and to that point, and because you, you've made the case this week that this does not necessarily have to make Alberta less competitive, that, that we can thrive in a carbon price world. So, what are people missing then when they argue that this is going to really hurt the industry here? Well, so I think part of it is is simply I don't I don't know the units. So when I hear thirty dollars a ton, I don't really know how that translates to an oil sands barrel, a barrel of conventional oil, electricity, natural gas, et cetera, the things that I use. And so even a you know a new oil sands mined barrel might be down in the range of point oh four tons per barrel. So you're not translating $30 a ton to $3 a barrel. You're translating it to significantly less than that. Um, and it's compare, And depending on how the policy is structured, you don't necessarily have to have a big impact on the overall viability of those investments. And that's what we try to do with the policy we designed for Alberta. Where, you know, on the on the other hand, where people should have concerns in Alberta is we do have a resource that's among the more expensive and among the more carbon intensive oil resources in the world. And so what I've tried to make the point of is, you know, we, we often hear those sound bites of 80% of the emissions from a barrel of oil are downstream in the refining and the combustion of the barrel. Uh, but as the world moves on climate change, I'd flip that around and say 80% of your carbon policy risk is downstream. And we need to think about how to make sure that our resource 
is lower carbon, lower cost as we go forward and drive those innovations that will let us compete for that room in the global market and then also drive the acceptance of the, the resource nationally and internationally to make sure we can get access to markets. Right. So this creates a level playing fields across the country, but mm-hmm. there's still the un even playing fields uh, between Canada and the United States. And this is a point that's often raised that we still got to compete with the U.S. And for that matter, the U.S., China, they're such big emitters. Does it really matter what we do here? Well, and uh, so I think those are two separate questions. Uh, On the first one, I'd say, you know, we certainly do compete for capital, not just with the U.S., but with all other potential investment destinations. And in all of those places, you'll have a combination of things which matter to, to attract investment. So not only do we have, you know, corporate income tax and personal income tax, but you have requirements for health care, benefits, et cetera, and carbon policy and other environmental regulations that will all lump in together to make our jurisdiction more or less competitive. So you're not going to see people just say, on, on its face, while we have carbon policy here, I'm not going to invest. That's part of why we saw in Alberta the royalty review, for example, come after the carbon policy review, because the competitiveness aspects of our oil sands and our other resources come not just from carbon policy, but from the broader fiscal environment, our labor supply, et cetera. Uh, there was an argument advanced this week uh, by uh, a federal politician from Calgary, as, as it turns out, that the reason the big oil companies got behind the Alberta carbon tax plan is because it will squash the little guys and uh, give them more market share. What do you make of that kind of an argument? You, you know, I, I think uh, I think you're, you're referring to Michelle Rempel's points. Yeah. And, you know, I think uh, I listened to a couple of, of interviews with her, and, and she, always, she always makes very good points on this and, and served as parliamentary secretary for the environment, so she knows this file really well. The, um, the part about the little guys being cr- squeezed out by the big guys by carbon policy, though, doesn't seem to doesn't seem to make any sense to me. I mean, number one, you're not seeing all of the big players in in favor of it. You're seeing a mix across some of the big players who are in favor and some who are against. Mm-hmm. And similarly, you have some of the smaller players in the space that have some of the best resources and some of the best technologies. So if I look at a company like Meg, which uh, Meg Energy, which has one of both one of the best oil sands deposits and has been one of the most innovative companies in the oil sands, under the policy we put in, they could actually be well positioned to come out better than they would have been under the previous policy. So I don't see why this change would make, for example, a company like Meg more likely to go bankrupt and less more likely to be taken over by a large player. Uh, that just doesn't play out in the data. Well, that, that speaks to, you know, the, the part of what the Alberta government is doing and, and spending money to try to encourage the development of more of these alternatives. Because if it was easy for a company to switch, I mean, a company would, the, the price gives some incentive. But where, where are we at on the technology side? I think, you know, part of, part of it is, is a lot of this going on a, a anyway, There's, uh, because carbon is a small part of the input cost for companies. So they're worried about natural gas inputs, they're worried about water uh, treatment, and now they're worried about carbon emissions. So you've got two types of, of uh, innovations which improve emissions performance. One is just broader, we want to use less energy, we want to produce more barrels of oil per unit of steam, per unit of, of energy input. But then some of the others that are directly tied to reducing emissions, so some of the CCS and and related technologies. And there's just a whole range of exciting things from 
small incremental changes using solvents to extract bitumen with in situ production, all the way to some, some newer pilots on things like radio frequency microwaves to substitute electricity for natural gas in, uh, in extraction, electrification of mines. No, I believe CNRL right now has a pilot uh, using uh, CO or using CO2 to grow algae to uh, create renewable fuel out of it. So there's a bunch of neat stuff going on across the oil sands industry. And then on the conventional side, you've got uh, companies, I know Ferris in Calgary, for example, has a pilot in the buck and using captured gas that would otherwise be flared as fuel for drilling rigs. So you take something that was going to be an emissions problem and a wasted energy, capture it, compress it, and um, transport it nearby within the same field and use it to enhance and make future extraction cheaper. So the, there are lots of neat things going on. Questor in Calgary is another one that has flare gas capture and, for uh, power generation. So you've got a ton of, of neat things going on in the space. Well, that's encouraging. We'll leave it on a, on a positive note then. Mm-hmm. Andrew, uh, people can find your piece. It was in the Globe and Mail, I think, yesterday, right? They can, yeah, yesterday afternoon. All right. Well, I always appreciate you making some time for us. Thanks for the insight on this. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate right, it. Take care. Andrew Bye. Leach, uh, economist, associate professor, Alberta School of Business, University of Alberta. And, of course, was chair of the uh, Climate Leadership Advisory Panel here in Alberta. 403-974-8255. We'll come back with some of uh, your calls, your text, your reaction to, to what you just heard there. It's Afternoons on Newstalk 770. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on Newstalk 770 Calgary.